1: I'm Val Agostino, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast.
0: It was like the first thing I did. Okay, maybe the second. First, I discovered personal finance and financial independence. Then I started to track my spending. And the best way to do that, of course, was a budgeting app. I think I first chose personal capital, but got annoyed with all those sales calls. Then it was Mint. was the first time I saw everything laid out so perfect in front of me. My spending, my saving, my investing. I can't imagine being where I am today without such powerful tools, and they were all free. Or used to be. With the announcement that Intuit is sunsetting its popular personal finance app, Mint, I sense the world of online budgeting apps is changing. Here to discuss these changes, we have Val Agostino, the co-founder and CEO of Monarch Money. Quick note. Although you may hear advertising on this podcast for Val's company, Monarch Money is a paid sponsor of Earn & Invest, he is here today at my request to discuss this very relevant topic. This is not a paid appearance. He just happens to be the right person to have on the show right now as the fintech world is pivoting. Val Agostino is a seasoned internet entrepreneur, general manager, and product executive. Over the past 17 years as a founder or early employee, he's helped multiple companies start from scratch and generate $100 million in revenue, raise over $100 million in financing, and garner attractive returns to investors. He is a co-founder and current CEO of Monarch Money, a comprehensive platform for managing all aspects of your personal finances. Val, welcome to Earn and Invest. It really is big news in the budgeting app world, Intuit announced that it is sunsetting its popular free app mint in january twenty twenty four. Val, I imagine you must have mixed feelings about this,
1: yeah, well, first, thanks for having me on Jordan. It's great to be here. Um and yes, you're you're right. I do have uh, somewhat conflicting feelings here. I was, as I think I mentioned uh, in recent blog posts, I was the first product manager on Mint. Um so, Mint started back in um, 20, 2007, actually. It was when we started working on it and then launched in, in 2008 and was acquired by Intuit uh, in 2010. And so I was part of that original team that launched the product through the acquisition. I've always felt very proud of what we've built. It's been really cool to see this Mint go on to continue to grow under Intuit's uh, umbrella and at the same time, I, I felt uh, it sort of stagnated, you know, as a product, which is why after many years, I've kind of jumped back into this space and started building what what I felt like was sort of the next evolution in in personal finance. So it's a little bittersweet, you know. On the one hand, it uh, obviously, you know, it benefits Monarch to h- suddenly have this uh, influx of customers looking for the next personal finance tool. But yes, it's uh, it's also kind of sad to see your your baby get put to rest, so to speak.
0: You mentioned that the technology somewhat had stagnated, and that was why you decided to build your own. And I realize maybe I'm using a misnomer here. I've been saying budgeting apps, right? But yeah. is is that not necessarily the right thing to call them? I mean, is it more than just budgeting?
1: That's a great question. I think of budgeting as a feature, and you know, it's a, it's a very valuable feature to a lot of people to zoom out a bit if you kind of think about your financial journey or or like you know Maslow's hierarchy of financial needs if if he had one uh we tend to think about it as like the the first layer is is get everything in one place you know which is just understand exactly what you said in the you know in your intro understand where am i what does my financial life look like so on and so forth and Mint really was one of the first products that that made that easy to do. The second piece on that is what we call tracking, which is kind of like, okay, now that I know where I am, it's like where where am I headed right and and how are things changing day to day and month to month and over years And I would say budgeting is part of that, but but we largely just call it tracking, which is like, hey, see see what trajectory I'm on and and where i'm where I'm going." And what we found at mint honestly was that was very useful but then the immediate question folks had was kind of okay well, now what do i do you know like what what should happen next and unfortunately in our country we don't get much financial education you know that's not a surprise to folks right but and so no one understands a lot of the the basics and it's sort of like okay everything's in one place but i have no idea what to do next and that next piece is what we would call planning which is like okay understand your goals Understand the different trade-offs between things, uh, and help someone create a plan for the right order to do stuff, and and then you know how to execute that plan over time. And traditionally, you know, you might meet with a financial planner or advisor to do that. The problem is that industry typically charges about five thousand dollars per client per year, or if you're under an asset management model, you know, one percent AUM. And so that kind of prices out about 80% of the population. And what we found with Mint even was folks were just kind of in do-it-yourself mode, but they didn't really know what to do. And so we were actually way back then thinking about, okay, we're going to, at the end of the day, financial planning is just math. Computers are good at math. There should be a software-based solution to help people explore different scenarios, plan their goals, come up with a plan. And um, you know, like I said, we were thinking about that at Mint, and then the the acquisition happened, and you know those plans kind of got shelved. It, understandably, into it, you know, wanted to leverage Mint for different purposes, which we can we can get into if you want. But I always felt like that was the clear next step, and it always surprised me that no one built that. You know, I left into it shortly after the acquisition. Uh, built and sold a few other companies in totally different categories. But when no, when no one kind of took what I felt should be the next step in this space, that's why we you know, launched Monarch in,
0: in 2019. In a moment, I want to talk about how you got in this space in the first place, but your response really begs a question. You, you kind of compared using these personal finance apps to this idea of going to an advisory and how much that costs. And of course, because it costs so much you know, a lot of people are looking for a different solution. The one thing about when you go to an advisor, right, is you get your statements and you kind of have all your data. And if you decide to leave that advisor, it's somewhat potable. And I'm thinking about Mint sunsetting after 15 years. Maybe some people have been using this app, been inputting their data and their information for all these years. What happens to that data and can people bring it with them? Is this one of the risks for not just mint, but for some of these other apps that we see out there today
1: yeah it's a it's a great question um today with Mint, you can export your data uh I, and you know we are working on we have an importer to to make that easy at monarch other other peers do as well, so that's the good news um you know it's a little clunky i think to to get it out and and migrate it over, but uh folks are similar to ourselves are scrambling to make that easier for people so Yes, you can, you know, migrate your your mint data. And and to your point, I think that the broader thing though is your financial history really sort of mi- mirrors your life history in, in many ways. And people are very emotionally attached to that history. It's like, hey, you know, I sh- I graduated, you know, maybe school, and I was like, you know, scraping by, you know, and and here I am, fifteen year late, fifteen years later, and you can. It's rare in your life that you can see your progress kind of quantified, right? And and how things have changed and whatnot. And so, folks, you know, it's really kind of the story of their of their journey. And I think I think that's an important, you know, it's an important part of your personal history that understandably you want to keep. So we're we're really trying to make that uh easy to to bring over. And yeah, my feeling is your data should belong to you. Um, you know, not just our not just our data within Monarch, but And this is sort of a broader philosophical thing. You're probably familiar with like the open banking regulation that's, you know, coming through. And so part of what makes this whole personal finance space so tricky is, at least in America, the banks, you know, we we very much as a country said, hey, the banks own the data and you have to like jump through a bunch of hoops to get it. And, you know, the good news, I guess, here is that the CFPB uh, or the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is putting forth regulation to kind of force banks to make this uh this data available. Now that that's probably a couple years before it actually trickles out into, you know, the market, but I'm confident that we're kind of headed in, in the right place and going forward it'll be a lot easier for people to kind of own their own data and and do what they want with it.
0: So tell me how you landed in the fintech world and got interested in personal finance in the first place. How did you end up at Mint?
1: I've been an entrepreneur for gosh almost 25 years now and as a founder you go through these kind of extreme swings you know you'll have months sometimes years right where you don't pay yourself anything because you're trying to build a new business and get it off the ground you know where you have no income coming in um and especially in my case uh you know when I was younger and and before we had kids it was a little bit easier you know then then we kept doing this when my wife and i had had three kids and we made the decision when our kids were young that you know she would stay home with them so and we were living in the bay area so it was like massively expensive you know I was basically paying myself nothing uh, and trying to support a family of 5 in the bay area on you know like a founder salary and so the the, the need to like track every single dollar uh and make sure that we were you know like going to survive financially was was very acute we got Candidly, we got down to the bare metal uh, multiple times, and so I got very good at you know building my own spreadsheet models. I started off using Quicken like you know before Mint was around, and then I was one of the early adopters of Mint, and um, uh, or I'd, I'd heard of it. I'd tried one of the versions before we launched, and then I I reached out to the team and just said, hey, like here's here's a whole bunch of suggestions, and they invited me in to you know kind of join as their first product manager. So that. Yeah that was that was early days and ever since then I've I've used pretty much every tool out there in some capacity or another.
0: Your personal inter- history is interesting right because you were an avid user before you were working in the field based on your personal experience and now what you see kind of on the more professional side how much of a difference do these budgeting apps make like I feel that you have to decide to become good with your money on your own and yet the app can also kind of propel you forward? Yeah, it's a great question. At, at the end of the day, you know, financial health
1: is, it's a behavioral problem. You know, as, as a doctor, you can appreciate this. It's just, you know, like physical health, it's it's mostly doing kind of the small things consistent consistently over, you know, some long trajectory. And, and over time, those, those little things compound, right? And so, you know i think there's an element of like education just teaching people like hey these are the these are the basic concepts of personal finance it's it's not that difficult once you figure them out and then these are the behaviors that you know again when compounding like the basic one just being you know spend less than you earn which you know is uh if you're not tracking your money it's really hard to know am i spending <laughs> less than i'm earning right and and when you are you can see that month to month and say okay like Great, you know, nine out of the last twelve months, like we we saved a little money every month or or whatever, and you can you can start to adjust your your behavior based on the the input from the app. And so, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about what's the behavior, you know, what's the outcome we're trying to drive for folks. Like, what's the behavioral incentive here? How do we help people understand this? And I think, in at at their best, these personal finance apps should feel a bit like a game. It should feel like, okay, I'm, I'm I'm understand the rules of the game, I'm getting better at this, I'm improving. And I see I see the results, you know, and, and and that's another piece I'll mention here is I believe that, you know, the financial health epidemic in our in our country is one of the biggest social problems. Um, and you know, it's like one of the number one causes of divorce. It's one of the number one causes of of depression and suicide. Um, it's obviously like an issue in the sort of widening wealth gap in our country. And again, it's, some of this is, is sort of macro focused and, you know, we're not here to, to try and fix like the problems of the economy, but a lot of it, people have agency to, to dramatically change the trajectory of their financial lives just by doing some of the small things over a long period. And, and I think that's where these apps can be very helpful.
0: Let's talk about free apps versus more of these subscription services. I yep. think a lot of us back in the day, you yep. pick things like personal capital and mint because they were free and reason we, we, pretty quickly. You realize personal capital wasn't exactly free because you got these annoying phone calls and all sorts of yep. things all the time, trying to sell you on their services. Yep. And I think a lot of people were very happy with mint for a certain period of time, but now clearly things are changing. Talk about Mint's business model. Was it viable? And are the days of kind of the free personal finance apps going away?
1: That's a big question. Um, so, I'm, and, and let me be like straightforward here. I'm very uh, opinionated on this, having worked in the internet industry for 20 plus years now. And my belief personally is I think we as an industry, got things wrong when we pushed free on on everyone. Um, and it's not it's not just personal finance apps, right? it's it's I mean Google, Facebook, uh, you know, you name it like they've delivered this massive utility to the world. there's no question. And the the ad-based business model is rife with misincentives. And, you know, my belief at this point is I think there's kind of two camps. I think there's what you would call a, a direct business model, which is like where customers pay for what the value they get. And it's, you know, very like 1950s. Like you <laughs> if you don't <laughs> if you don't like it, you don't pay. And and it's very clear. And then there's indirect business model, which is uh, that was the whole idea behind the, in the early Internet was like, hey, everything's going to be free and we're going to find alternate ways to, to monetize this. And you now look at media and sort of, you know, the problems with misinformation in our country and how it's like you sort of unraveling democracy in many ways. And you just see like at massive scale, there's really perverse incentives when you when you get to these huge scales and, and the customer is not the person using the product, right? The customer is the advertiser or someone else. And it just, again, at massive scale, it creates these these misaligned incentives. And I think that's especially problematic in these personal finance apps because your, your financial data is so relevant and personal and, and targeted. It's way more personal, let's say, or, or, you know, privacy centric than, than, for example, the stuff you click, you know, online. And yet people are just kind of blindly signing up for these free apps. And, you know, this data is basically being used to target advertisements. In many cases it's being sold kind of out the back door and aggregate to folks. And, and let's be honest, no one reads, you know, the terms of service of these products and and that kind of thing. You know, this was one thing we really wanted to fix when we, when we built Monarch was like, Hey, let's build an app that, you know, is affordable, hopefully, for, for most people. And where the ROI is so obvious that, you know, it would kind of be a uh, you know a no-brainer to, to pay for it. That was sort of our our, our founding principle. That said, you know, we've had 20 odd years of people being conditioned to like use a free app. And, and so it's it's gonna take a long time to unwind that. It's crazy. Since the Mid News came out, there's been thousands of people on Reddit and emailing us. Kind of being like, how dare you charge, you know, try charge <laughs> me for this thing that if it works is going to dramatically improve my financial life. <laughs> and it's there's just like this massive, like logical disconnect, but I get it. We've been we've been conditioned for 20 years by big tech to think everything should be free.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely hits me this idea that I'm trying to get better with my money. The last thing I want to do is sign up for a new subscription service. You yeah. yeah, you recently wrote a blog about mint and you talked about if you're going to look at a subscription service, what are the types of things you should be looking for? I found this really interesting because you already talked a little bit about this idea of alignment, right? And we see this, the problem with the free apps is are the companies really aligned with you and what they're doing with the data, et cetera. But even of the subscription services, as we look at them, how do you measure as a consumer kind of that alignment factor? If I'm looking at Monarch or if I'm looking at any of these others, what are some of the key things I should be looking at to say okay this company probably is going to be aligned with me we're we're really we have the same goals. Yeah,
1: it's a great it's a great question. I would say look for uh number one is the business model like am you know am I the customer or not <laughs> and and then the second and, and let's be honest like there's plenty of companies that have a subscription business model that don't do a great job of of servicing their customers. And then the second piece I would look at is like how responsive is this company in in listening to customer feedback and executing on that and, and being candid about their, their plans and their roadmap? And you know, that to me is is sort of the holy grail is like, hey, you know, let's let's create this bond between customer and and company, if you will, where we're we're trying to like work together to like create something valuable. Uh, you know, you tell us what you want, we're going to build it, and then you're going to compensate us for it. And everyone's happy. And I think, at its best, that that's how business should work. And, you know, I think we've overcomplicated it in,
0: in recent years. Yeah, it, it appears to me, the positive, right, about having a subscription service is that the feed loop. Feedback loop should be a lot more direct, right? Yep. You're paying for the service, which means that the company should really be listening to you and then trying to incorporate those things in a much faster, much more helpful way. Yeah. The, ca- the caveat I'll add to that is that doesn't mean
1: that the company is going to do everything you want. <laughs> and so we have a lot, you know, personal finance is very personal. We, we, we have literally hundreds of thousands of of customer requests now at this point, and you know people understandably get upset when they're like, "Yeah, hey, I pay for this thing, you know, I want this esoteric feature, and you're not building it." Um, and so it all, always pains us when we have to tell folks like, "Sorry, you know, we hear you, but w- you know, we're not going to get to that in the foreseeable future because we're building these other things that you know we think are are more attractive to folks." And so. I'll just toss that out there. Like you also have to recognize as a customer. Okay, it's you know the company is not going to do everything under the sun, and frankly, you don't you don't want them to because then you'd get this like Swiss Army knife, uh, super complicated product.
0: So we're talking about what to look for when you're thinking about a subscription personal finance app, and again. We're not talking about this because we're trying to sell you on Val or his company. The reason why we're having this conversation is because tools like Mint are probably going to go away or may not be aligned with you. And so it's really a relevant conversation of if you're out there looking for these tools, what you should be looking for. So one point was alignment. We just talked about that. No. The next is data connectivity. And I have to tell you, I actually really did love Mint, but one of the problems I continuously had is I felt like I was always reconnecting my bank account. So yeah. tell me about data connectivity and why that's important when you're looking at possibly paying for one of these services.
1: Yeah, great question. And, and we could do a whole episode on you know the history and state of data aggregation in personal finance. It's a uh, you know, it's a bit of the Wild West still, which is, you know, unfortunate. But yeah, as I mentioned earlier, if your data is not accurate and comprehensive and up to date, these products lose a lot of their utility. Uh, you really need to have a comprehensive picture, know how things are changing and, and so on and so forth. And it's, it's super frustrating, uh, as you point out, if, especially if you go and set all that stuff up and then you know one of them disconnects every day or every week or, or what have you, uh, or you can't connect it to begin with. So for folks that don't know, uh, these personal finance apps do not have direct rel- relationships with any of these banks. Like pretty much across the board, we all work through data aggregators uh, and that could be Plaid or Finicity or Yodely or, or whomever. The problem is that none of these data aggregators have a comprehensive coverage of the U.S. financial landscape. And so usually what happens is an app will try to pick the aggregator that is either cheapest or best for their particular use case. Like some are better at investments, some are better at credit cards, so on and so forth. And then they kind of go from there. Also, these, these data aggregators are not free. It's very expensive. To pull this data in, which is why, again, this is the free based personal finance apps are just not a a viable business model. Like they have to monetize through some other way. And this is an area that people, you know, don't understandably understand if, if they, if they aren't familiar with this space. But like, um, in our case, we're working with, uh, with a multitude of aggregators and we're constantly testing new ones and plugging in different things and trying to, and, and, And that, you know, increased the cost basis, uh, at least at Monarch, but we also feel like we, you know, have better data coverage as a result. The other thing I'll I'll mention in this space is this aggregation landscape is always changing. Um, You know, people have been, like recently, Amex decided they were going to block a bunch of aggregators. And so it basically killed Amex across many of these tools. And people got super irritated, you know, with us, understandably, and, and other folks being like... How can you not support Amex? But at the end of the day, it's Amex's decision, you know, because they don't want their customers shopping around for other credit cards or, or whatever to, like, kill access to that to that data. And so this is where the, the government is finally stepping in, and they're going to hopefully regulate that that these folks through open banking can um, or will, you know, have to make their data accessible to the end user. So the good news is this should get better over the next couple of years.
0: We are talking to Val Agostino. He is a seasoned internet entrepreneur, general manager, and product executive. Over the past 17 years, as a founder or early employee, he's helped multiple companies start from scratch and generate over $100 million in revenue. And we are talking personal finance slash budgeting apps in an era where Mint is going to be sunsetted in January 2024. Should you get a subscription service? What is new in the budgeting app world? We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, service key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to LinkedIn.com/slash earn and get started. We are back with Val Agostino. He is the co-founder and current CEO of Monarch Money, a comprehensive platform for managing all aspects of your personal finances. Val, we've been talking about what the consumer should be looking for when they're paying attention to things like budgeting apps, considering a subscription service. We talked about being aligned with the company. We also talked about connectivity. Last but not least, maybe most importantly, let's talk about privacy. This is really sensitive data. We've kind of mentioned that briefly in our okay. conversation already. If you're out there looking for a new app, is there anything you can do to protect yourself against privacy issues or at least to have a good idea of what that company is about?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, the, obviously, you can read the the terms of service. You know, look for stuff like data sales or or partners. And, and again, as we mentioned, recognize that all of these services are getting data from data partners, like the aggregators. Uh, the question is, are they then repackaging it and selling it on to other folks? Are they monetizing through through product offers or ads in in some manner? You know, in that case, then they're clearly you know targeting you based on your financial profile in some way; those are the really the the big like tells at, at this point. Um, and ask folks, uh, you know, most people, you can say, "Hey, do you, you know, do you work with advertisers? Do you sell our data?" You know, and, and people hopefully will be pretty pretty upfront about that. And again, the the whole internet industry as a whole has been sort of uh, opaque about this. So it's it's something that I I feel pretty strongly about.
0: We've kind of drawn the line between this idea of a budgeting app versus more of a personal finance app, right? An app where you can do more than just budget. You can plan plan your financial life. Here we are going to talk about Monarch a little bit more specifically. I noticed one of the things that you guys really concentrate on is this idea of collaborating with a partner. Why was that something that you decided to build in the app? And how do you do that exactly? We
1: always say money is not a single player game. You know, and it it shouldn't be something that you uh, struggle with, you know, individually. Uh, whether you're in a partnership or you know a, a relationship with the shared finances or not, because it's such an important you know it's such an important aspect of your life. And if you think of um, you know something like physical fitness. We've all probably had the experience of like, you know, trying to go to the gym on our own versus like maybe going to a class, for example, or, or, you know, working, working out with a trainer. And you realize like that collaborative piece and that accountability and the social aspect, like adds, it adds just more adherence. It helps you feel like you're, you're, you know, part of something. So when we built Monarch to be collaborative, we initially thought okay, it's just for partners to collaborate on their financial goals, to stay aligned on, on stuff. Uh, and it certainly does that. We hear all the time from couples, they're like, oh my God, for the first time in our marriage, we're not fighting about money. Um, so that's been very powerful. A surprise for us has been how many folks are then like inviting in their CPA or their tax advisor or a, a financial advisor. And so we, we recently, just a few months ago, launched a, uh, a Monarch for Advisors solution. And now we have advisors that are using it with a lot of their clients. And and so we're, again, we, our original hypothesis was, okay, this is going to be like software based tool only. We're now seeing there's a lot more adherence just to like your financial outcomes when you have some level of accountability, right? And that could be a professional, it could be your partner, you know, it could be a, a buddy. Another thing that we've seen, which has kind of been a surprise is, um, you know a lot of folks our generation have aging parents right and so now they're they're setting up their parents on monarch to monitor their finances and especially in an age of of elder fraud and that kind of stuff it's a way to kind of keep track of everything all in one place so there's a lot of different collaborative use cases that
0: honestly we didn't we didn't think about when
1: we started but that's been you know very powerful
0: There are privacy issues there, obviously. But as I'm hearing you talk about this, I I, I get the feeling that people also want community. So when you're talking about these collaborations between mates, between a CPA or a lawyer, et cetera, is there any thought to this idea of collaboration forming communities around interest about budgeting and personal finance, maybe not sharing each other's data, but forming other types of communities within the app?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a good question. We we've we have thought a lot about this. You know, there are a lot of communities out there already. So, we don't want to try to our current thinking is let's not try to recreate, you know, all these communities. Let's make it easy for people to to share in a privacy-centric way um, you know, some of their information. So, for an example, we we recently launched a a Sankey diagram uh, but you can you can convert everything into percentages instead of dollar amounts. And so what we see is people will say, "Hey, like this is what my financial life looks like." You know, thirteen percent is going to rent. You know, six percent is going to groceries. Like whatever. You know, I'm a I'm a 35 year old married guy with two kids. Like, does this look right or not? <laughs> and then and they'll post it to Reddit, and people are like. Well, this is what my numbers look like. Uh, You know, I don't spend nearly that much on groceries, so I don't know what you're doing. And and so, it's a good way for people to kind of calibrate on what their financial life looks like. And it's, I, I believe, over time, we're becoming as a society, at least in America, we're becoming more open about this stuff. And it, and as a result, people are seeing better outcomes. You know, it's just like everything else. And you know, people are happy to talk about their health. And or, or whatever. And yet finances has been this kind of taboo topic. And, and that's starting to shift, especially with the younger generations.
0: Let's broaden the conversation and talk about the future. First and foremost, do you think the days of free budgeting apps are probably gone or going to be gone soon?
1: I think they were gone 10 years ago. And, <laughs> you know, and, you know, honestly, Mint just subsidized or Intuit just subsidized Mint, you know, since then. So, kind of it's been dead for a long time. It it has never been a viable business, and I don't. You know, people will. I'm sure there will people come and try and launch free budgeting apps. And my perspective is they're all going to go under, uh, or probably get acquired and shut down.
0: All right, without you know betraying trade secrets, what do you think is on the horizon for these type of apps in the future? And again, I think we're focusing on this idea that a lot of them are becoming much more than just Here's what your budget looks like. What do you think is going to be built into some of these apps as time goes on? Yeah, I think there's a lot
1: of companies that are are thinking of, okay, how do we, you know, how do we help people reach that next step? You know, so kind of going more into into the planning space there's of course with the rise of ai you know every startup is trying to figure out okay how does ai fit into our business in some way you know we we did a beta version of a of a financial chatbot in in monarch you know our assessment was uh and, and most people in ai kind of find this it's like 90% of the time it's like pretty amazing what it can do and ten percent of the time, it's it's just wrong. It's <laughs> <And> so, horrible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we have not rolled this out, you know, in mass. We've kept it in beta. We've, we've been sort of quiet about it. I think it. Frankly, I think it's going to revolutionize the industry eventually, uh, but we're not. You know, we're not there yet. So we're we're certainly exploring there, but you have to balance again, folks. Folks, privacy, you know, we, we you know, are very thoughtful about not sharing any of the data outside of, you know, the, our our sort of, um, you know, wall garden and everything. Yeah. In, in my mind, those are kind of the two big things, which is like, okay, how do you actually help people deliver better financial outcomes? I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's the goal here is like know where you're headed and help people get there. Um, and I think AI is going to be an accelerant along that path, although it's still fuzzy what that looks like.
0: I'm interested in the generational change. When I think of myself, I'm Gen X and a lot of the baby boomers and older people, we're really used to kind of that writing in the checkbook yep. and we're used to the pen and paper thing. Do you think in the younger generations that these apps are going to be ubiquitous? I mean, is this where things are going?
1: You know, it's, I hope so. It should. They should be ubiquitous just because the benefits are so large you know um and and honestly once you get it set up the amount of friction is pretty pretty low that said it's kind of like any human behavior problem whether it's nutrition or exercise you know there's like what you know you should do and what you want to do <laughs> and sometimes uh let's be honest like a lot of us just want to stick our head in the sand and kind of go spend money that maybe we shouldn't spend And that's, you know, that's fine. That's just part of of being a human. And and over time, you know, and and we see see folks kind of go through this wave of like, I'm going to go through periods where I'm, you know, more on top of my financial life and and less. So I do think younger generations are a lot more tech savvy. You know, they tend to be app first. They want their primary interface to be software. But I think a, a surprise here may be they also want to like have someone they can talk to if if they have, you know, more in-depth questions. And so I think my view is, is that's another part of what this future looks like is, is you're going to have more of a hybrid between software-based solutions that incorporate targeted human advice, you know, when, when it's relevant. Um, and so I think we'll see this kind of blending of the traditional financial planning and advice model and the app-only model into kind of a more you know, unified
0: platform, if you will. I mean, as you were talking about the AI and as you're answering this question, it definitely hits me, this idea of, you know, reporting is one thing. And I think a lot of the early apps were really good reporters. You put your information in and it then would report. Are we at that transition point where it's not only going to be the reporting and helping you manage and categorize, but there's going to be targeted suggestions? targeted advice based on what the app is seeing. How far away are we from that?
1: We're already there as far as like, you know, what to do. I mean, Monarch has an advisor built into it. You know, again, I mentioned the AI stuff that can, you know, we've, we've trained that on, on a bunch of different um, heuristics on, on kind of, you know, what people should do in a particular sequence based on their goals. So I think the advice is already there. That's not to say that it, you know, it's not perfect, obviously. So you need to, always need to like take this stuff with a disclaimer and and think about it. I think the holy grail will be, if you ultimately can have this sort of intelligent agent where where as a household you can kind of put your finances on autopilot, you know, to some degree. Obviously you don't want to take your hands off the wheel and you want to be informed about what's going on. But you know, in the ideal world you would like connect everything say, hey, this is what I'm trying to achieve in my, in our financial life. These are our goals. It would spit out a plan and then tell you, okay, you know, now I'm going to help you execute this thing through. You know, here's what you need to do. Here's some of the stuff that I can help you do. Maybe, you know, if you have a, a an advisor, it's like, okay, this advisor is going to help like put together an estate plan. You know, if you're married and or have kids, you should, you know, have a have some kind of estate plan or will. A lot of people don't, and that's the type of thing that is relatively formulaic and and could be the cost could be reduced dramatically. Uh, through technology, and and it is you know there's there's companies that do this, so we're we're exploring some of these partners as well.
0: I, I want to be more granular in my questions here because, again, this idea of you can input, let's say, into Monarch or, or or even another app. This idea of I want to save up for a car, and I yep. think the car is going to be this many thousands of dollars, and then the app can say, okay, you need to save this much a month to get there. But that's a far cry from saying. I'm looking at your asset allocation here and you're, you know, you're really heavily weighted in equities and maybe need more bonds because you're in your 50s and blah blah blah. Yep. I feel like those both use some advising there and I think they both can use some artificial intelligence but they're very different things. Yes, um, they're very
1: different.
0: Yep. Are we moving more towards that second model as opposed to being limited to just that first model which again is much more calculation based you tell them what your exact goal and value is, and they'll spit out the numbers.
1: Yeah, I so yes, absolutely. And my view is ultimately the platform should be able to answer any of those types of questions, right? You know, what you're you're touching on there's sort of there's investment, uh, you know, advice. There's spending advice. There's debt pay down advice. There's estate planning advice. There's insurance advice. You know, there's these kind of different buckets of your financial life, and as an industry, we tend to treat these differently, right? You know, there's like the insurance guy, and there's the investment guy, and there's the the real estate guy, and and so on and so forth. Uh, But the reality is, all this stuff is very interconnected. It's all pulling from your same kind of pool of cash and cash flow and assets, and so on and so forth. And so, in order to give good advice you really need all this stuff connected in one place so you can you can look at these trade-offs and just on that note part one of the challenges in the, in the broader like financial industry is at least in America your financial complexity really explodes in kind of midlife you know it's like when you're trying to buy your first house maybe starting a family uh, or planning a wedding and then starting a family, still paying down student loans, trying to invest for retirement. There's like all these like pretty big financial questions and they're all, again, interrelated. And the problem with that is like the times when people need advice and tools the most is in this kind of, you know, 25 to let's say 45 stage. That's not what the industry is serving. They're looking for like the retiree that has, you know, $3 million where they can charge you 1% asset management. And, you know, and so they're looking at, you know, 50 and up. Uh and so there's just been this huge gap of like what, what, what our society really needs as far as advice and help and what's being provided. And I think that's where technology can kind of come in and deliver a lot of that advice at a much cheaper cost uh, and at a, at a much larger scale.
0: Well, Val you know, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. The big news is that Intuit is sunsetting mint. But I think the bigger news is that these financial apps have become a part of our life and have become a huge part of managing our finances. And as the world changes and we realize their issues with alignment, very few of them are going to be free in the future. So I think a lot of us need to wrap our minds around What is a value to us and how to search out that value in an intelligent way? All of us are going to be using some type of budgeting app or personal finance app in the future. It makes sense that we start thinking about now this idea of how we're going to find it. I want to end this episode the way and every episode by asking you what is up next with Monarch Money and how people can reach out to you. So first and foremost, what is happening with Monarch Money?
1: Since the Mint news, we've seen you know massive influx. So we, you know, we've set out to build Monarch. The goal was not to recreate Mint. The goal was to build kind of the next generation of, of financial tools. Uh, that said, there's a lot, a hand, not a lot. There's a handful of features that Mint had that Monarch does not have. So we've been understandably scrambling to to incorporate some of those. So so bear with us. You know, so we'll. I'm sure we'll go through a, a bumpy couple of weeks as all of you know, mid folks um, move over. Longer term, we are really committed to just helping Americans improve their financial health, and and what that looks like. You know, we talked a lot about it, but it's really our goal is to build kind of the comprehensive um, platform for running your your household finances. And uh, you know, whether you use us or you use something else, I would just encourage people to. To try some of these apps and, and to start to learn and develop uh, better financial behaviors, because again, the corollary between physical fitness is, is very abrupt. It doesn't—it doesn't matter where you are. A lot of people think, "Oh, I don't have enough money, so I don't—I don't need one of these apps or whatever." Um, but it's just you know, just like exercise, wherever you are, like some exercise is better than none. And if you get if you get started. Over time, even just, you know, walking a little bit every day compounds into a much healthier, uh, you know, lifestyle and everything. And I would say that's even more dramatic when you're using these apps, because once you get them set up, like I said, there's very little effort to do. And you start to learn the right things. You start to think about, okay, what's my relationship to money? Like, what am I actually trying to achieve? You know, would I rather would I rather have that new car or a vacation or or, you know, put money in retirement or my kid's education? Like, there's no right and wrong answer, but but it forces you to be more intentional about where you're headed. And I think ultimately that's that's healthy for everyone and, and that drives like much better outcomes and it reduces people's stress. Like financial stress is one of the primary causes of stress in, in America. And if an app can help change that, you know, for a few bucks a month, in my mind, that that's a no-brainer.
0: And Val, if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about Monarch Money, what is the best way for them to do that?
1: You know, MonarchMoney.com. You can reach out to our team. Uh, I'm on social media as well. Feel free to, to ping me there. Um, and you know, there's various contact
0: methods on our, on our website too. So that's probably the best, best approach. Val Agostino, thank you so much for being on Earn and Invest. It was great, Jordan. Thank you so much for having us. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. All right, I don't know if you're going to believe me or not, but this was not meant to be a big advertisement for Monarch Money. The point of doing this episode was not to talk about why you should spend your money with them. It is true they're an advertiser of this podcast. They signed up to be an advertiser of this podcast before the announcement that Intuit had about Sunsetting Mint And yet, as we came closer to the time where I was going to be running their advertisement, I realized I wanted to have that conversation about Mint now while it was happening, as opposed to waiting till months later and having Val on the show when he wasn't advertising on my podcast. So that wasn't the point of this. I'm not trying to just sell you on Monarch Money. I wanted to have a deeper conversation about some of these budgeting apps, especially about these free budgeting apps. So You know, I was just like everyone else. I started by using personal capital. I eventually moved over to Mint and I really liked what it could do for me. I liked that it aggregated all my accounts, that I could track my spending, that I could figure out where I could save money. I mean, this was really a game changer because up to that point, if you had asked me how much am I spending a month or a year, would have been really difficult to tell. I mean, I could have looked at my credit card statements. I could have looked at my ATM or cash machine withdrawals. I could have tried to put it together. And granted, there are a lot of people who do this with paper and pencil. But a major hurdle that a lot of us had was an ability to aggregate this information in a clean way. And and here's the more interesting issue. We liked them because they were for free. This was something that was being provided for us, and we didn't even have to pay any money to use these powerful tools. The point was we were paying, maybe not in a subscription fee, but we were paying in a sense that the alignment wasn't there. The people making the apps didn't necessarily have our best interests at hand, there were other interests, whether it was advertisers or whether they were selling your data or whatever it was, the alignment was off and it didn't end up being a particularly good business model. So if you had been relying on Mint all these years, that's great. But now they're disappearing. More and more of these financial apps and budgeting apps are subscription apps. So the question then becomes is, are you willing to pay In order to have these easy calculators, budget tools, and all this personal financial information, are you willing to pay to get it? And I think the answer is different for every person. Some of us still want to do it with pen and paper, and that's fine. And we just have to work a little bit harder to aggregate all that information and get the information we need. For the rest of us, it might make some sense to find a few good apps that are really helpful for us and to pay money for them. And so then the next question becomes something we really did talk to Val about is, well, how do you know whether this app is the right one for you? How do we know if it's worthwhile for you to spend money on it? And I think it does come back to alignment. Are the incentives aligned for the producer of the app and the user of the app? Are you truly the customer or not? Or is some advertiser the customer? How well is your privacy being guarded? How easy is the app to use? And how is the connectivity? This is a major issue with financial apps because usually they need to aggregate your financial information to do what they're supposed to do for you, which means you're going to have to connect a bunch of different accounts. And trust me, because I've used a number of these apps. If you are unable to connect your accounts, it is a big pain. And in fact, nothing is worse than having to re-sign in every single time you're on the app to reconnect over and over again the same accounts. It's disruptive. It means that you're not enjoying the process of using the app, and therefore it probably won't do for you what you want it to do. So that's it. That's a wrap on this episode. We are talking about fintech budgeting apps, personal finance apps, is it worth paying money for them? And what will you do now that Mint won't be available? I hope this was helpful, and I look forward to talking more next episode. That's a wrap. All right. So usually I leave things rolling just for a moment or two to catch what we talk about as an after show. Anything okay. I left out, anything that you think is important, either about your product or other products in the field that we just didn't talk about?
1: I think we touched on a lot. Um, I'm very passionate about this alignment thing. Uh, I mean, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> there's... This might be useful to your audience. You've probably seen this. There's a great Charlie Munger talk uh, on alignments in business. Um, you might want to link to that in in your show notes. But you know, he's obviously Warren Buffett's business partner. But but his stance was like over 50 years, or you know, now 70 years, or however long they've been investing, they he's kind of come to the conclusion like alignment is like the most important you know force in business. Uh, and he gives all these examples. It's it's at he gave this talk at some university. I can try to pull up the uh, the thing, but it I don't know. It was very impactful for me, and it's one of those things like once you
0: see it, you kind of can't unsee it. <laughs> um, so I don't know. Might might be helpful to your audience. Yeah, definitely. Alignment, I think, continues continues to be the problem. Um, yeah. Obviously, with us as consumers, um, just yeah. really trying to figure out what the best tools are out there. Tell me about how and when you first heard about the Mint announcement because that that's a big deal for you guys, right? Because yeah. a huge number of possible customers, totally. um, just a giant kind of in the in the in the field dropping out. Yeah, they.
1: Uh, I mean, we heard kind of the same time everyone else did. It was like Thursday of last week. Um, they sort of pushed something out on their on a help center article mentioning that. They were moving everyone to Credit Karma and these features weren't coming over. And of course, folks found this and posted it to Reddit. And that's when it kind of what it kicked exported. off. Yeah. Yeah. The whole, you know, Hubbaloo. So they, they clearly haven't communicated this very well. Um, and, and honestly, you know, I don't know if you want to include this, but within Intuit, personal finance, it, well, let me back up. It's. It's kind of an interesting story, right? Because Scott Cook was the founder of Intuit. He built Quicken, like, at his kitchen table. Uh, Yeah, he's a great entrepreneur. He's a great guy. So Intuit started with personal finance as kind of like their core. And then over time, they're like, okay, let's help people with tax. And they acquired TurboTax. And and they acquired these other – every business they acquired was something, you know, QuickBooks, Turned into multi-billion-dollar revenue streams, whereas Quicken stayed pretty smallish. You know, it ended up doing about a hundred million a year in revenue, even at its peak. Um, and so, understandably, over time, as a company, they just they really rotated away from from personal finance. And then, you know, recently they acquired Credit Karma, which at the end of the day is a marketing company. They acquired Mailchimp, which is a marketing company. Again, both multi-billion-dollar revenue streams. So the writing was kind of on the wall that the, you know, they're not going to keep, they're no longer a personal
0: finance company. So you, you Um, saw some of this coming.
1: This is a large reason why we, the original mint team all left. We thought when we got acquired we're like, okay, back in
0: 2010. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We're going to have this scale. We're going to like finally execute our mission. And we got inside into it and it was like, okay, you know, see you guys down in the basement. You know, (laughs) if you, there was no resources. There was no, you know, it was, it was obvious once we were in there. Oh, this is a little bit of a a bait and switch, frankly, like this is no longer a personal, a company that cares about personal finance. Um, And, you know, logically it makes sense on their part. I don't, you know, I, I'm sure if you were a public company executive, you'd probably make the same choices. Uh, But it's also frustrating because mint was, you know, beloved by so many people.
0: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. vs. China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off,